Hello and welcome to ESG Out Loud, ESG Clarity's podcast. I'm your host, Natasha Turner, and today's episode features an interview with Michael Sheeran, who is a man of many hats. He is President and Chief Strategy Officer at MVGX, but he also served as Senior Advisor at the Bank of England, as co-chair at the G20 Sustainable Finance Study Group. And, you know, he's he's an advisor for UNDP Sustainable Finance uh, and, you know, involved in the University of Cambridge Sustainability Leadership Programs, that kind of thing. So fingers in many pies. Um, we recorded this more than a month ago. It was actually just after the TNFD announcement. Um, and we do discuss that announcement in the episode and, and also the effectiveness of voluntary frameworks more generally. You can imagine with the various policy hats that Michael wears. He's got some thoughts about the role of policy and uh, the effectiveness of it, but also the sort of the rollbacks that we've seen. We also in this episode talk about carbon tax, voluntary carbon markets. Um, He was speaking to me from Singapore. So we talked about some of the markets there and he's got a lovely phrase, Schrodinger's carbon markets that he uses. So he's not knowing what's in that credit box before you open it, which I thought was a really interesting analogy. And of course, we've got COP28 coming up. So we discussed that as well, which actually leads me on to something I want to mention just before I play you uh, this episode, which is that next month, we've got a very exciting episode of the podcast coming up. As you know, ESG Out Loud brings you the outsider's perspective uh, of climate finance, of social elements, things like this, things that are going to influence the investment Uh, community when it comes to ESG, sustainable finance, things like that. We speak to economists, we speak to climate scientists, we speak to politicians, you know what we do. So next month, we've actually got our graduate reporter, Holly, on the ground uh, speaking to youth groups and uh, people that she uh, has access to, activists, things like this. for about about COP28 and about what they hope to bring and what they hope that the investment community will take. Look out for that very special uh, narrative episode next month. But for now, please enjoy the interview with Michael and as ever, let us know your thoughts. So thanks so much for joining us today, Michael. Oh, it's a real pleasure. Um, good to be with you, Natasha. So we're talking actually at the start of New York Climate Week. Um, we've just had the release of the final recommendations from the TNFD. There's lots of things going on. So before we get to talking about um, your role and some of your sort of takeaways for the sustainable investment industry, um, what are you making of of some of the these announcements so far? What have you made of the TNFD, for example? Well, the announcements are great, but as you've probably been following over the last several years, big announcements don't always come through with big actions. If you remember the um, last year at COP, you know, the big thing was supposed to be the the hundred billion for the, you know, damage and everything and no place where the money was coming from. And if you recall, actually a couple of years prior to that, well, many of the Northern um, countries had promised another hundred billion um, and none of that has really come through. And as you well know, 100 billion is is not even a rounding error. Basically, here in Asia, we need about 1.7 trillion a year globally, somewhere between four and five trillion a year towards um, climate initiatives. And so, I, I look at it. 
I don't want to poo-poo, you know, announcements and nature is extraordinarily important. And it's been so, for so many years, it's been decoupled from climate. But I think what I'm really looking forward to is seeing some action in the form of states and governments actually doing things and getting some funding and seeing the private sector really start moving towards executing on a lot of the things that they need to do to meet net zero uh, commitments. Mm-hmm. Do you think perhaps it, without that, or maybe with some sort of mandating of things like this, then uh, frameworks such as the TNFD won't be so effective? I, I, yes, I do, actually. Um, having been in, with the Bank of England for almost 10 years, been active in the NGFS, the G20, a lot of the big policy setters, um, I honestly think if you're going to see a, a genuine transition, a real movement in a global real economy, um, voluntary is just not, we're not going to see it. And you know, there's been some work coming out of Cambridge. Um, I think the University of Exeter, a lot of the transition and the threats around both physical and transition risk are going to be, are far more immediate. You're living them. You see them every day. I mean, everything from what just happened in Libya to, um, you know, the, the, the forest fires in Canada, I could go on and on for this year, but also last year, it's been the warmest year. And I guess my point being is if you don't start making these things mandatory, um, you, we're just not going to even come close to meeting the targets and the needs we have. Um, and, and I know there's a lot going on. I've been in a poly, policy position. There's wars. There, there's, there's, there's huge issues around um, migration, which, by the way, much of that has to come with inequality and climate, second, third order events. But, um, you know, again, my punchline is if we don't start mandating a lot of this, both around nature, around climate, around climate, around um, carbon emissions, we're not going to even come close to meeting the Paris agreements. Mm-hmm. Well, in in your um, view, then, or, or in your, your experience in some of those policy roles, is there an appetite to do this? I mean, in the UK, we've seen, for example, the green finance uh, taxonomy being pushed back Uh you know, general sort of feels like rollback on some of the um, green policy commitments from the government, for example. I mean, is there the appetite on the policy level to mandate these things or to push this uh, agenda forward? Um, I'm not, I'm, I'm feeling some rollback, to be quite honest. Yeah, I think the German government also is pushing back on taxonomies for SMEs, which, as you know, the SMEs are supply chains. Supply chains are really the biggest piece of scope three emissions. So they, they do matter and they do count. And look, and I'll be the first to tell you that there are multiple demands on governments around the world right now. But if you, this is not something that can be ignored, though. I mean, it's existential to to us as a species, and if we don't start doing things immediately, we are going to ultimately pay the price, and it's not going to be 100 years from now. Much of the latest information coming out of universities, out of the Met Office, um, you're seeing, you know, some real escalation. So, yeah, I am feeling, I am feeling um, that there's been some rollback, and, and I think we need to call that out where we can. Mm-hmm. And we, we had... Um... Chris Skidmore on the podcast last month, uh, who did the, the put together the Net Zero review in the UK, and it, we ended up in a sort of similar uh, conversation. And I asked him what the private uh, or what the sustainable investment industry can do. Is it a case of you know waiting for uh, this to happen, or are there steps that can be taken? 
No, I think there are some steps that can be taken. I mean, ultimately, if if, if everyone just waits for everyone, nothing happens, and we're, we're we're left in a pretty horrible predicament. So there are examples where I think you can see some different, um, you know, major players, both in the financial markets as well as some equity players. I just was reading before I came on about a new billion um, equity fund that's going to be, um, you know, helping fund small um, investments and medium-sized investments. There's the Earthshot Initiative. There's a lot of stuff going on. But um, I was just meeting with the, I'm in Singapore right now, I was just meeting with the Monetary Authority of Singapore, and we were just talking with some um, some colleagues from the UNDP. But the real problem with these these wonderful small initiatives or medium-sized initiatives is scale. So there is some good stuff on, we can't wait, but ultimately they will need some scaling. And I think that really comes with the real economy starting to make serious changes in business models. And some great examples, and then and I'm not all gloom and doom. There's some great examples. Like the auto industry is fantastically great example. If you would have told me five years ago that General Motors and Ford would commit to being 100% EVs by I think it's 2030, I would have fallen off my chair. And they're there. Um, you you can see Europe absolutely threatened by the amount of EV, the the jump that China's gotten. So you can see an industry that hasn't put in. A little bit of money, not billions. They put in, I would imagine, close to trillions in remodeling, retooling their 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 business model. And and by the way, kind of circling it back into to climate finance and financing to do a business model transformation. And it doesn't matter if you're a dry cleaner on the corner who needs a machine that uses less electricity or cleaner chemicals than that, or whether you are Volkswagen or General Motors you're going to need CapEx and you need R&D and you need new operating costs and that's financing. And that's why the financing is so important that, you know, so there are some great examples where you can see the private sector, they're getting out there, they're moving. And these are not around the edges in the automobile industry. I mean, there's real fear with some of the companies, whether, you know, if they're too, if they're too late to the EV world, basically it's an existential threat to them. So you can see there's some really bright sparks in there and those are pretty heavy industries. And I was just reading the other day that, um, as you probably know, Sweden has actually two companies that do green steel. And what makes green steel is obviously your source of power comes from a renewable source. And obviously your commodities are also renewable or sustainable. And they're looking to branch out and become bigger. And those are two great examples, steel and automobile. Those are not light touch industries. Those are heavy industries. And they're the ones that really need to move. So there are some good examples. There are some examples of leadership, but unfortunately it needs to cut across everywhere. And, you know, it, it's not happening yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like we uh, we hear about, you know, kind of exciting examples and things like this from, um, from our readers or some of the managers that we speak to. And yet there still seems to be quite a, this kind of like global equity, large cap, growth bias in the eventual funds that you see in this kind of space um is it that we have to wait for those some of those industries that you mentioned to scale or, or how can some of our readers or uh, these kinds of investors be um, making the most of those opportunities no that's a great question and it's a bit of push and pull um, you know, obviously, um, the, the the push will come at some point from policymakers, and there'll be it'll be one of a variety of things. Uh, so some governments, you know, look at you've seen um, the EU has probably got the best cap and trade um, mechanism um, globally, but at the end of the day, it's only for certain industries. So I think from the push side, at some point, there's 
going to need to be some type of carbon tax, a real tax on it. And by the way, if you're, it, it's it's not a silver bullet. There's no silver bullet in this, but it's a certainly a big motivator. I mean, if you looked at a PL of any company, I don't care again if it's a dry cleaner or or BP, and you look at the expense side, cost of goods sold, and you put a line in there for um, cost of carbon. And I've talked to I can't tell you how many investors, big asset managers, and I tell them, look at. Every stock, every bond you own on a company is mispriced because right now they're not really capturing the cost of carbon in their business plan. And I tell them to do exactly what I mentioned to you. Just do a simple experiment. Go in to your P&L, put a cost of carbon in and pick a number. I mean, you don't have to use the EU one. You don't have to use the single one, but pick a reasonable number. I don't, you know, 25, 35 bucks a ton, run it up into 2030, the OECD, my colleagues at the Bank of England, put roughly 100 to 120 bucks a ton by 2030. So kind of scale it from 2023 to 2030, and then look at the EBITDA of that company, the cash flow. It's going to be meaningfully reduced. And as you know, if you're buying a stock or a bond, there's a valuation process. And normally it's a, it's a PE, it's a multiple on your cash flow. Well, if your cash flow has just been cut, by 20, 30, 40, 50, and in some cases, 70, 80% because of you have to pay for carbon, your valuation goes down. So if you're a big asset manager or a big fund, whether it be BlackRock or a little mom and pop one, and the time comes and it will come when you have to have a price on carbon. If you haven't been looking at your portfolio, if you haven't been wondering what would a carbon price, even a smaller medium one, and by the way, Singapore had a $5 one, which I thought was almost counterproductive, but now it's stepping up to 25. That's starting to actually matter. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden there's a focus. So if you're looking for push things on the policy side, as I mentioned, that's not a silver bullet, but it's certainly a really powerful mover. If you lose a huge amount of your EBITDA because you're paying for you know, the true cost. I mean, at the end of the day, carbon going to the air is a, it's a free riding negative externality. It's a nasty thing that you're perpetrating on both your fellow citizens and earth and you're not paying for it. That's why it's free riding. You have to start paying for that. And that comes out of your cash flow and it gets reflected in your valuation. If you're an asset manager and you're not paying attention to that, basically you've got to know all of your valuations are mispriced at some point in the midterm. And I think this is a really important way for them to think about it. So if you're trying to influence your, your invest investments, or if you're an investor, so you're, the people that are part of your community that are listening, that care about ESG, that own stocks and bonds, look at, they have to, you know, say, are you, are you paying for this negative externality or is the true cost? Um, you know, I, what I always do when I do public events, I'll grab my glass of water and I'll say, look, at, this is a glass of water. This glass needed to be manufactured. It's probably manufactured using, it could have been gas or coal or something like that effect. Then it gets put on a truck, probably in a plastic crate, gets hauled around. And if you were to actually start determining what the true cost is of that glass, if you pay for your carbon, you pay for your plastic, you recycle, you pay for all of that that glass is no longer a two pound glass. It could be a 10 pound glass. And that's the true cost by when you start internalizing negative externalities. And I don't think if everyone in the world started looking at everything they own from a car to a dishwasher to their children's toys and said, my goodness, if I actually had to pay the proper cost to have 
you know, carbon not going in the air, do not have NOx particles in the air without having, I think we ingest about a credit card worth of um, plastic. I think it's close to, it's, I think it's a week now. But basically, if all those things now weren't happening, how much would we have to pay for our products? And that's the, that, that's the day of reckoning that's, that's coming because ultimately we don't really have a choice on this. So, you know, unless we want to wait for a, a tipping point or we call it a nonlinear event. Um, and you've probably seen in the news recently, um, I'm a fellow at Cambridge University as well in the um, Institute for Sustainable Leadership. And I also um, have a lot of my colleagues who are on the um, science side. And we've been talking for about seven or eight years about the, um, you know, one of these tipping points, one of these non-linear events. And one of them we've been talking about is what about the Gulf Stream if it stopped? And we've known about that for ages, but what you may or may not have caught a few weeks ago, what should have been next century has been pulled into this century. And if you look at a classical bell curve with your low end uh, probability on either side and your, your, the low end probability is now kicking in in about a, two years from now. And if the Gulf Stream stops, there's no owner's manual about turning it back on again in the second and third order effects around sea warming, ice melts, and physical things are huge. So I've kind of I've, I've rambled off on a lot of things that I'm sorry, but they are all interconnected. And if we don't start pricing those free riding negative externalities around carbon, around plastics, around NOx particles in our manufactured goods, you know, we're in trouble. But once we start doing that, we have to recognize the cost of things, stuff we buy will go up because we've been having kind of a free lunch for a long time on our consumer and industrial goods. Mm -hmm. And and you've been doing a lot of work on kind of voluntary carbon markets and things like that, right? I mean, I, I know I said I was going to go into yeah. your role and uh, and things like that, and, we, and we've gone off on this. So, so yeah, uh, uh, out without your policy hat on now, then what what is the other kind of work that you're engaged in right now? Sure. So I'm working with a, um, well, actually, I'm the president and chief strategy officer at MVGX, um, which is both a software company and a financial service company. The software side is working on basically some of the solutions for SMEs and small groups. So things like carbon footprinting and how do you mitigate. Um, we've got relationships with people like um, Oracle and Tusud, and we're working with them to provide solutions um, for companies. The other thing that we're working on right now, and I guess I, I, I probably should address your question on the carbon markets. The, we own or we have um, as part of our group financial service side an exchange here in, in Singapore. We can basically sell anything, stocks, bonds, carbon credits off of that. Uh, we have um, broker dealer license, um, derivatives, um, even a custody one, which is you know very powerful for trying to come up with financial products. Now, the voluntary carbon market, if you've been following it, which I'm sure you have, is, in a, is, is utterly in tatters right now. It's the forest one. And there's a, there's a whole slew of reasons for it. And you've been watching liquidity leach away. Um, a lot of the major players in there, and this is a little bit technical, but what they've been doing is if you have a private um, forest, a, a group of land in, let's say, Indonesia or Malaysia, they've been using just that small piece and collecting data on it. However, that data isn't connected into the country it's sitting in. So there's something called the jurisdictional um, baseline data. And then there's your kind of your self-created one. And to be honest, most of 
the um, voluntary carbon markets in the foresight have been doing the private ones, which means you have no clue if that baseline data is accurate or not, and whether or not there's been any sequestration of carbon. So if you're a buyer of carbon credits and you don't know whether it's a valuable one or not, you know, that's something that, you know, you're going to call into question. There's been huge questions on it. So I would argue that's problem number one, but that is a solvable problem. So I would argue that private um, cons conservationist groups, which there should be as many of as possible, should be submitting their data into jurisdictional baseline data, which then you you know whether or not it's, you know, properly accounted for within the, the, the um, within the country. So that's that's one big issue and that's huge. Mm -hmm. um, it's almost like Schrodinger's carbon credits. You don't know right now whether in that carbon box is actually a real credit or not. So if there's no confidence in the market, there's no liquidity. The second thing, which you've probably heard a lot on, is around standards. What you know, what what you know, what are the rules of the road? And there's great work being done by the ICBCM and the VCMI. The ICBCM, as you know, makes the rules around the sell side. What are the standards around a carbon market? And the VCMIs are on the buy side. Who should you sell to and who should you know be buying under what conditions? Um, I would argue, and I'm going to hopefully be putting out a paper before COP, which says these two organizations should become part of a binding global regulatory authority. So if you if you start with these two pieces, if you start then issuing your data, the jurisdictional baseline, you have proper regulatory regimes, all of a sudden you start having trust and confidence and integrity in the carbon markets. And that's something that we're, we're certainly hoping to see. And to be honest, this is, this is not a brainstorm on my part. I think a lot of people not only agree, but see that's the path of travel. But I would argue that that path of travel needs to speed up tremendously, because I would argue the, the the main purpose for the voluntary carbon market, and let's call it now a merged unified compliance and market that follows these two um, pathways, is to provide funds into emerging markets so they can do sustainable development. To me, that's the primary major purpose for it. It's nice that a company who's in their last five or ten percent of abating can use um, you know, offsets for their hardest to abate, but to use them just to claim your carbon neutral, which as you know, in the EU is a very dubious title, is, is not proper usage of them anyway. So I, I have great hope and we have great hope here that, th that that's the pathway forward and that we really are behind not only the highest integrity, but regulated and highly defined carbon markets. So you do think that, uh, credibility and the kind of proper use can go hand in hand then there won't be a kind of um a greater risk uh if there is a more credible system in place that it gets uh, sort of misused or or over relied on yeah well having been a, a banker for many years fraud is hard to um, work around but if you've got if you're submitting data into a baseline data you've got regulated um, integrity in terms of what your standards are that goes a long way now the great thing about the VCMI, it does say, you know, who should be buying them and for what purposes. Now, if you want to sell them to people who are claiming that they're, you know, that they're emitting 100 tons and they're buying 100 absorption credits and they're carbon neutral, well, that's greenwashing. That's mm -hmm. not that's not what they're intended for. To be honest, countries and companies alike are supposed to be abating their actual absolute carbon emissions. That they basically that the carbon credits 
are only to, to, to backstop the hardest bits. They're not the solution. They are just simply helping countries and companies on their pathway to net zero carbon, but they are certainly not a substitute because if they're not actually abating their absolute carbon emissions, then to be honest, the carbon credits really shouldn't play a role. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just wanted no, to get, no. sorry, go, go ahead. No, I was about to tell you about something more exciting that that, that we're working on, mm -hmm. and it's still, and it, I probably shouldn't um, front run this because we still are, are are talking to the the Monetary Authority of Singapore. But what we're hoping to do also with the different uh, financial licenses is to launch the first multi-strategy green fund management company that would do financing of credit, i.e., loans, green tech, private equity, so equity and then reforestation nature. So we would have funds that would work on credit, equity, and nature. And I don't know of, and maybe you do, because you're, you're, you're in the press and you talk to a lot of people, but to have what's hopefully going to be a large commercial multi-strategy green fund management company that we think will, the, you know, the credit side, the loans will be geared towards green infrastructure, which are solving the problems of today around new renewable energy, around green, um, technology, which is trying to find the substitutions and the answers for tomorrow, and then the reforestation to be science-based only and wouldn't be generating any credit cards for probably anywhere from four to six years about solving the problems we did yesterday. So kind of really trying to approach in, in, in a full encompassing way um, all the, the challenges that we're going to have. Mm -hmm. Oh, that'd be very interesting. As we approach another, yet another COP, with potentially not that much um, progression since last year, what are your what are your thoughts for the private finance industry and what they might be able to get out of of this year? Yeah, no, I'm I'm hoping desperately that um, they can actually stand up and recognize that if they don't start deploying that capital, particularly in emerging markets, um, that if you you know, and in, in, in I think you alluded to. Um, um, development banks. To be fair, I, I, when I was a private banker, I did do some work in, in the emerging markets, and they're tough. They're tough in every market, to be quite honest. Um, but certainly, there's additional risks there. But if you look at the opportunities, and, and, and by the way, I hope we, we can talk about the opportunities at some point, not just the risks and the downside, because there's some huge upsides. But um, get, using development banks, and look, I don't need to say it, but ultimately, and, and there's been, um, the Secretary General just mentioned, I think yesterday, the need for the development banks to really start focusing on the first loss positions, which is equity, subordinated debt, that allows the crowding in of, uh, of private capital from around the world. Um, you know, if you think of uh, Brazil as the right lung, Indonesia is probably the left lung of the, the earth in terms of forests and that in those areas. And not only do you have the need to help them substitute, and there's been a lot of money, particularly around Indonesia, about substituting their um, coal for renewable energy, but there needs to be a lot of investment. So you need the private sector development. And, you know, if, if I can leave you with, you know, if, if, you, if you, you need to stop cutting down trees and you need to substitute coal. Almost everything else we do, if we don't do those two things, is like moving deck chairs around on um, the Titanic. So putting some serious money there, and there's a lot of that coal is sitting in in tough markets. And it's hard to tell an emerging market when the developed north, and you know, I'm, I'm a British citizen, you know, we 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 led the Industrial Revolution. We've had some real great, you know, runs on things. But is it fair to kind of tell developing countries who are, you know, 
never had that benefit, who, by the way, also hold huge stocks of nature, which we need to keep the planet in check um, without giving them financing for solutions to be able to substitute that coal for renewable energy and support their development. And I think that's going to that needs to be front and center on the conversations at COP. I mean, it, it always gets there. We always talk about it. But, you know, it's always next year, not much really happened. And in, in getting the incentives right that the private sector and structures, by the way, this right, that they can go into countries like this and the development banks can help mitigate some of that risk, insurance, things like MEGA wrapping some of this with risk. But a lot of these are infrastructure projects and they are long term projects. And if you're a pension fund or insurance company, um, look at if you if someone can give you a 15, 20, 30 year, um, you know, packaged asset backed security of green infrastructure um, that can go for 20 years, that, you know, is a great, reliable asset that's well structured to match your liabilities. You know, that to me is something really appealing. And that's, you know, I've, I've worked for one of the biggest asset managers in New York for, for periods of time. I know, you know, their assets and liability matching is really crucial. And I think there's real opportunities to do that. Um, I'm just hoping <laughs> at some point we can get that combination of risk mitigation on the equity and the subordinated debt side to bring in these big institutions to help start delivering some of this green infrastructure, particularly around energy. And it's not just Asia here. I mean, look at um, country, uh, countries like Poland desperately need support to substitute out their coal. Um, you know, there, there, there's no there's no shortage of countries that don't need, you know, good financing structures that can substitute them, you know, substitute the, the transition. You can't just tell them you shouldn't do coal. You need to be able to provide the financing and the solutions. Mm hmm. Okay, one more slightly negative point before, and then let's let's end on some opportunities, like you mentioned. So, okay. um, you know, another another thing that's we've just heard around um, this this time uh, this week, even uh, is, and you mentioned sort of tipping points earlier, which which made me think of this. But it's the sort of crossing of planetary boundaries, right? I think it's <clears throat> something like six out of the nine have been crossed or transgressed what can we be doing to mitigate this just the easy question at the end just uh, <laughs> rounding it all yeah. <laughs> well the e easy one actually has an easy answer the hard and the, the hard part of the answer is mobilizing people to actually do it um and as my my boss and my you know, co colleague at the bank of england mark carney said you know it's a tragedy at the horizons everyone I, you know, worries about right here, right now, today, and doesn't look into the future. The only problem is, to your point, there's a University of Exeter report um, came out in July this year, and one of my colleagues at Cambridge has just sent out something as well, I'll send them to you, that talks specifically about these tipping points. And they're getting much closer than people ever realized. So that tragedy of horizons that we thought those physical risks we're off in another century, really are starting to manifest right now. And the problem is once you get one, much less a second one. I'm, I'm helping another central bank right now work on developing their model for a stress test. And the problem is no one wants to put nonlinear events, which are catastrophic, into a stress test because it kind of flatlines everything. Mm -hmm. um, but we're getting close. So the only answer to this is really the big asset managers, the big fund managers, the people that control the 100 trillion roughly of institutional money, realizing that they it needs to go in things that will actually help save our planet, which is around the energy transition. As I said, stop cutting trees, which means giving people a just and fair transition. So if you're gonna tell people in Brazil or Indonesia, they need to stop 
cutting trees, we need to start giving them also ways of having sustainable livelihoods that, and in, in lieu of them cutting trees. And that's going to mean some, some redistribution around the world. And guess what? Um, that natural capital they control, the more they cut, the more closer we get to those tipping points, the more you're going to wish we started doing this last year. Mm-hmm. So there okay. are solutions, but it does yeah. mean some big decisions and the money's there, mm-hmm. but it, it, it's got to move. Yeah. Final final takeaway then, final final point you might want to make for our, our listeners. Yeah. The great news is, the good news, positive news is, A, is the money's there. And the technology is actually there. I don't think really you can do green and give ourselves the solutions we need without it. If you think about the levels of efficiency around um, solar panels now and the cost of them, that's technology. If you look at in Hull, the um, wind turbine blades that we that are produced there are as sophisticated as airline wings. They're amazing. Um, the green steel I mentioned, the 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 movement EVs. Um, I've looked at um, green. Um, vertical farms. So, you know, you use less land, less, they use 90% less water, they're higher in vitamins, they don't solve every plant, but there's, there are great solutions, you know, whether it's um, laboratory um, based meats, which by the way, don't have hormones in them, not pump full of hormones, they don't have all the other stuff, or whether it's plant based meats. I mean, the solutions are there. The other great thing is having been, you know, around some of the best economists in the world and being been trained in a lot of this in finance, that um, the job creation is there as well in these areas. I mean, if you think about a global energy transition, will it mean some retraining in some countries? Yes, it, it, it'll be messy, be complicated. But I guess if you're in the 99%, there's no shortage of jobs. I mean, there's certainly some challenges to the some of the incumbent industries that won't transition. But if you're, you know, a bright worker, college educated, all the way down to, you know, you know, non non college educated, there will be jobs. So I guess I'll leave you with the money's there for the transition. The technology to actually drive it is there. The people, you know, the, the, you know, there are jobs, there will be jobs created for them in this um, all over the place. Even on, as I mentioned, those wind turbines, well, guess what? They're going to need sensors. So you're going to need factories that make sensors that monitor them. So jobs are there. Just really, can we actually pull ourselves, pull it together to coordinate, to drive that transition or not is really the question. If not, it's our own fault. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, thank you so much. And thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Really great to see you and hope to uh, catch up again sometime soon. Find us on SoundCloud or iTunes by searching for ESG Out Loud.